0: Hello, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. Sarah, how are you doing?
1: Pretty good. Pretty good. Um it has been very warm for November. Uh and I think a storm is coming in with snow, so I have a migraine. Oh. But overall doing pretty swell. How about yourself?
0: Uh I'm doing pretty good all things considered. Um I'm like a little bit stressed heading into the Christmas season. Um but like honestly feeling pretty on the level.
1: Nice. I went out for dinner with some grad friends who were in town yesterday. Um, so that was really great. One of them uh, finally was able to convocate with her PhD. Um, it was a while in the making and I'm super proud of her. Yeah. So yeah, surviving so high on on those good vibes. But I understand tonight I should not be feeling good vibes. I should be feeling tormented.
0: Yes, uh, tonight we are watching a film called Tormented from 1960, and it is directed by Bert I. Gordon, who had a large presence in (laughs) 1950s drive-in genre movies, but we've actually yet to cover a movie by him because his sort of uh, niche up to this point has really been giant monsters, not... Horror. Um,
1: and also just a point of uh clarification, because you never know with these 1960 horror movies, Mm -hmm. um, it's tormented without an
0: exclamation point. That's right.
1: Uh, because it sounds like it should be tormented, but it's it's just tormented.
0: That's right. It's uh the vibe on this one I think is like modern day gothic, maybe. Um at least that's sort of what the poster and the plot synopsis was kind of giving me. We'll see. How it goes in the actual film. Okay. So uh Bert I. Gordon, also known as Mr. Big from those uh initials. That's a name that uh Forrest J. Ackerman gave him in his fan magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland. His full name is Bert Ira Gordon, by the way. He was born in Wisconsin in 1922. And he got a 16 millimeter Bolex camera uh, for his 13th birthday, which would have been in 1935, which basically tells you that like his parents were loaded. Yeah. If you can afford like a 16 millimeter camera to give to your teen son. So Gordon started making like home movies with that and had dreams of being a filmmaker. Uh, he served in the Air Force in World War II, and after the war, he and his wife, Flora, began making TV commercials. Uh, from there, he kind of worked a variety of jobs in the film industry. He cut movies for TV. He uh, did, like, post-production work. He he kind of did, like, a little bit of everything in his quest to become a movie director. And in 1954, along with Tom Grease, he made Serpent Island an adventure picture which he shot, edited, and produced while Grease wrote and directed. His directorial debut was 1955's King Dinosaur, uh, which he co-wrote with Tom Grease about a team of astronauts who land on another planet to find it inhabited by dinosaurs. Gordon used stock footage from earlier movies for some of the effects, uh, like stock footage from one million years BC, Um, he also for other effects, uh, such as the T-Rex dressed up like real animals, like an iguana in like costumes and then like shot them and then used rear projection and optical printing and matting essentially to make them look larger. And this kind of became like his special effects trademark from this point on.
1: Make thing big.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This was his trademark special effect. That doesn't necessarily mean he was the best at doing it. Uh, No, he
1: was just the person who frequently did it. Yes.
0: So rather than do things like, um, like say a kaiju film where you'd build like a model city and have your monster like smash around this model city, it would just be like, let's get some shots of a real city and then basically use matting to just mat in footage of a person uh, into those shots.
1: Uh, a person being the thing that is big? Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah, exactly. Just to clarify. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this began like a long series of monster movies, which all used these similar methods of filming people or animals and using rear projection, optical printing, mat work, etc., to make them appear larger. Um, if those terms aren't familiar to you, Rear projection uh, refers to a method where you would set up, like, a movie screen, like a theater screen, behind the actors. And then behind that screen, you would set up a projector to uh, project onto that screen from behind, hence rear projection. This was used a lot for, like, they're in a car driving around or they're, like, on horseback or whatever.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that's probably, like, the most frequent use of it so in a way that you don't even think of like this is a technique only used in sci-fi or mm-hmm. something like that it's used anywhere and everywhere hitchcock has used it yeah
0: yeah. it's it's in like most hollywood films of a certain vintage yeah um what's really funny is that we've kind of gone back to rear projection in a way in like a very high tech way because that's kind of what the volume. Is, which is like the soundstage that ILM has that they use for like The Mandalorian and Strange New Worlds and all these other like new sci fi shows, where you're basically in this like 360 degree bubble that's basically a film screen. And then they project the CGI environment onto that screen around the actors. And yeah. Shoot that.
1: Or like our flag means death where like they're not actually on the ocean, but it's actually it's a, a giant TV screen.
0: Yeah. It's a boat set with this big screen around them. Yeah. Um, when I say mat work, we're talking about the practice of like shooting a shot, covering the shot with like black where, you know, there's going to be something you want to mat in and then shooting another shot of the thing you want to mat in with the parts that are gonna be the first shot like covered in black and kind of putting them together uh, using optical printing, uh, which is is kind of what it sounds, but it's basically just laying two pieces of film over top of one another and then printing that into a third combined piece of film.
1: For more on matting, um, our Invisible Man episode actually goes into it quite a lot because that's how they did a lot of those special effects.
0: Yeah, absolutely so uh his next film the cyclops was done for allied artists in 1957 it's really bad um but it kind of like set off this trend of the next several films um he did the amazing colossal man which is about a giant dude destroying a city uh beginning of the end Earth versus the Spider. Those are both like, let's take insects and make them big. Uh, War of the Colossal Beast is the sequel to Amazing Colossal Man. And then Attack of the Puppet People is actually the reverse trick where Mm. he's making the main cast appear little amongst big things. These were all made in 1957 and
1: 1958 for AIP. That's a lot of work in just two years especially given the amount of extra work you need to do for these kinds of special effects
0: yeah so he basically like pumped out like six movies in two years damn and you know the difference between what he was doing and like incredible shrinking man for instance or you know later movies like um honey i shrunk the kids or what have you is again like Bert i gordon wouldn't typically go to the effort of like making like a set with like a giant book and a giant pencil and then have like the background be this mat of stuff when he's doing like the shrunken people right instead it would just be like essentially the modern day equivalent of like shoot everyone on a green screen and then everything else is just like holding a camera up really close to a pencil you know kind of stuff right so it's a very like cheap and dirty way of doing these effects In 1960, Gordon sued AIP for fraud, uh, alleging that they had denied him profits owed on these films by diverting the funds through multiple shell companies in a fraudulent manner. Oh. So basically, if you worded the contract, for instance, as AIP is owed 10% of the profits on this film made after it recoups its production costs... And the remaining profits shall go to Burt I. Gordon. If you were Burt I. Gordon, you would think that means you get 90%. But let's say AIP owns like five other companies like Trinity Film Lab or United Production Company or... Uh, Universal, World Pictures Incorporated, all of which are just shell companies that don't do anything, but they're all entitled to a percent of the profits as well. And they're not technically AIP. So your contract says 10% goes to AIP and the remaining goes to Bird Eye Gordon and neglects to say the remaining after these eight other shell companies we own get their cut. Yeah. So now you're only getting 10% when you thought you were going to get 90%. So, this is what Gordon was alleging AIP was doing. Uh, so, because that was happening, Tormented was produced for allied artists.
1: That lawsuit's going on as this movie's being made. Yes. Okay. Uh, what was the result i actually
0: don't know oh they must have settled yeah i couldn't find any results so yeah they must have settled but i do (laughs) know that he didn't like do any movies for aip after this
1: so that to me says aip was like hey man stop making a fuss here's money Mm -hmm. rather than them going to court and showing like no aip would never do this they were clearly doing this yes oh my god
0: This is the creative bookkeeping that happens a lot in Hollywood.
1: These days we just shelve movies that are completely finished. Mm -hmm.
0: So Tormented was not a movie featuring giant or shrunken things. It was kind of like it's just like a straight horror movie. It has special effects in it uh, because there's a ghost. Um, Oh, that's what's the tormentor.
1: Or is the ghost tormented and that's why it's a ghost?
0: We, I guess we'll find we'll out. We'll find out. Yeah. Um but it has ghost effects uh which are also done with like matting and and these kinds of methods but it's not a thing big or thing small movie. And you know, it's just this move into like straight horror which Gordon hadn't really done. And part of this was like wanting to get away from the kinds of movies he did at AIP and kind of diversify his output. And the other reason for it was like those big creature features of like radioactivity made thing big were falling out of style and straight horror was coming back, right? Yeah. Uh, As we've seen throughout 1960. And so that's kind of the reason why uh, this movie at this time, from here on out, his output is diversified like he does – pirate movies and he does fantasy films and he does, um, like some like sexploitation comedy movies and, uh, he does some more horror later on. Um, he does eventually get back to thing big movies starting in like the late sixties and then a few more in the seventies, but like, yeah, he's, he was doing more than just that. Ultimately though, it's his like 1950s thing big A.I.P. movies that kind of remain his best known pictures. Nine of his 23 films were featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000, uh, including this one.
1: Oh, no, that does not bode well. Mm,
0: Yeah, well, Uh, and Burt I. Gordon passed away on March 8th, 2023 at age 100.
1: Whoa, this year?
0: Yeah. Mr. Big. (laughs) Damn. Wow. Tormented's screenplay was the product of Gordon and co-writer George Worthington Yates, uh, whose writing we have run into before.
1: Okay. Yeah. I was like, I know this name.
0: Yeah. uh, His credits include the 1938 Lone Ranger serial, Them, (laughs) Conquest of Space, It Came from Beneath the Sea, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, The Amazing Colossal Man, Attack of the Puppet People, War of the Colossal Beast, Frankenstein 1970, The Spider, and then Tormented, which would actually be his last feature film screenplay before retiring. Oh, okay. Because he was like. Old. Yeah. He's like, been
1: working for a while. Yeah, he's
0: like 59 or 60 by this point.
1: Oh, that's early for retirement. Go him. <laughs>
0: Tormented was shot by Ernest Laszlo, a 62-year-old Hungarian cinematographer uh, who was just about to start on an eight-film streak of Academy Award nominations, Uh, but he had actually been working as a cinematographer since 1928 on films like Road to Rio, DOA, Stalag 17, The Naked Jungle, Kiss Me Deadly, and Attack of the Puppet People. One of these is not like the other. A lot of film noir, like B-movie yeah. film noir. His films after Tormented that earned him these Oscar nominations were Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, Ship of Fools, for which he won the Oscar, Fantastic Voyage, Star, Airport, and Logan's Run.
1: Did you put enough mads in that Mad, Mad, Mad World?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm just just double-checking. For sure. And he passed away in 1984 at age 85. The film's score is like a jazz score uh, by Albert Glasser, who began composing B-movie scores in 1941 when he was 25. His past scores include The Monster Maker, I Shot Jesse James, The Neanderthal Man, indestructible man monster from green hell beginning of the end the cyclops the amazing colossal man the saga of the viking women and their voyage to the waters of the great sea serpent mm. giant from the unknown attack of the puppet people or the colossal beast teenage caveman the spider like all of these kinds of movies right yeah um, he's probably best known For his scores for like this Western franchise that used to exist called the Cisco Kid. Okay. So there were a bunch of these like B-movie Cisco Kid movies in the 30s and he did the scores for them. And then there was a Cisco Kid TV show in the 50s and he wrote the music for that as well. Oh, nice. Tormented stars actor Richard Carlson. Uh, who we actually know, he had been like a romantic leading actor pre-war, who had moved into supporting roles post-war or lead roles in genre pictures. We've seen him before in The Amazing Mr. X, It Came From Outer Space, The Maze, and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Julie Reddig plays Vi, she was born Esther Faye Reddig in Texas in 1935. And she became an actress when she won a Warner Brothers contract in like a publicity contest in the 1950s. And she was typically cast in like blonde bombshell roles. Uh, she had four husbands from 1951 to 1964. But in 1969, she married Wall Street executive Herbert Huttner, who was like 30 years older than her. And she stayed with him until his death in 2008 at age 99. And then she passed away in 2021 at age 85. Okay. Actress Lugene Sanders plays Meg Hubbard, who's kind of like the secondary female role in this film. She was born Treveline Lugene Sanders in Oklahoma in 1934, and she's probably best remembered as teenage Babs Riley in the television series Life of Riley from 1953 to 1958. The character Sandy is played by 11-year-old Susan Gordon, Bert I. Gordon's own daughter. Thing small. (laughs) (laughs) Character actor Joe Turkle appears in the role of Nick the blackmailer. (laughs)
1: Is is that his legal name? Born
0: in 1927 in Brooklyn to Polish Jewish immigrants. He began his film career in 1958 and appeared in almost 150 roles in film and television over his 50 year career. Uh, Many of them like minor uncredited roles, um, small character parts, bit parts. But there are a few roles that do stand out in the memory of, you know, cinephiles. Uh, He played Tiny. Tiny. In Stanley Kubrick's The Killing in 1956. He was also Private Arnaud in Kubrick's Paths of Glory in 1957. He was Dino in King Rat in 1965 and Ghost Bartender Lloyd in Kubrick's The Shining in 1980, making him one of two actors to appear as a named character in three Kubrick movies. Today he might be best remembered as Dr. Eldon Tyrell in 1982's Blade Runner, a role he reprised in the 1997 Computer Game, and he passed away in 2022 at age 94. Tormented was released by Allied Artists on September 22nd, 1960. The film is in the public domain, so that means you can basically find it anywhere. Um, The best home video release is probably the Warner Archive Collection DVD from 2013. The version on our YouTube playlist is a 4K scan of a 35 millimeter print that was just like done for um, an archive uh, and put up on YouTube. It's not like an official release by any means, um, but it's probably like the best video quality of this movie on youtube so that's why it's in our scream scene youtube playlist
1: okay folks if you would like to watch along you can find that playlist on our website screamscenepodcast.com you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss tormented from 1960 directed by bert i gordon
0: see you on the other side everybody
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Tormented from 1960, directed by Bert I. Gordon, a.k.a. Mr. Big. Uh, Ben, what did you think?
0: This was fine.
1: Yeah, like, uh, it was content. Uh, (laughs) The the
0: worst thing you could say about (laughs) something.
1: Uh, I take it back. I don't want to be mean, because I did enjoy this. It was just very much like... um, Alfred Hitchcock presents like there wasn't anything that was like, yeah, this deserved to be a movie. Yes.
0: And, and that's, you've pretty much like already hit the nail on the head with where I'm at with this movie. Um, but we can kind of get into that more later, uh, after we tell the folks what it's about.
1: Absolutely. So for the film, we follow a man named Tom Stewart. He is a jazz pianist and he lives on an, island it's like a cape cod kind of deal mm-hmm. um it's like a regular island it's not weird that he lives on an island
0: yeah, yeah yeah it's just like an island that rich people live on
1: yeah um and when we open in the film uh his old flame vi has come to meet him um and they are meeting in an old dilapidated lighthouse now she's here because she's jealous that tom has moved on, um, he's also engaged to marry a girl, a woman named Megan, who comes from a very rich family. Um, he's clearly like in love with her. It's not just for the money, but it's kind of for the money because he's a jazz pianist. Anyways, Vi is here and she's not happy and she says that, no one will have you unless it's me.
0: And she, like, in addition to being like an old flame, is like also the woman who, like, sings on his records and stuff we find out later. Yes. And like she sang at like the jazz club that he used to perform at and things like that.
1: Yeah. She doesn't want Tom to marry Meg and she even threatens that she has those letters uh, and it would be a shame if anyone found out about them. She also lets slip that uh, no one knows that she's here on this island. She charted a private boat um, and so conveniently she could just disappear, you know? Um, now, they are up on the lighthouse, and they go up to, like, the the landing. That's, like, at the top outside of the glass place where the light is. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't sure what the official name was. I was yeah, like, Lighthouse Patio? No. <laughs> you know. So, the lighthouse landing. And as uh, she is, you know, telling Tom all these, like, vaguely threatening things, she looks around, and she's like... Well, Tom, you look like you could kill me. And she leans on a railing and it breaks. And she falls but grabs onto the ledge and she's like, "Tom, help me." And Tom is like, "Oh no. But if I don't help her, this all goes away." And so she falls to her death.
0: He doesn't like
1: He does the Batman thing of right. like, "I don't have I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you." Yeah, it's
0: not quite Scar and Mufasa. It's it's the Batman begins thing. Yeah.
1: The next morning, strange things begin to happen. Particularly, uh, Tom is looking out at sea. He sees Vi's body, goes and brings it to shore. And after he brings it to shore, he realizes, oh, this is just a bunch of seaweed. So he's like seeing things because other people were also like, yeah, you were carrying seaweed. What are you doing? We meet Sandy, who is Meg's younger sister. Uh, She has a blatant crush on Tom. Uh, She's nine, though, so it's very clear that it's like...
0: It's like a jokey kid thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We also meet Mrs. Ellis, who's the local real estate agent, who is blind and brings flowers around, honey around. She is a one-woman cottage industry. Um, Also just full of folksy wisdom. Folksy wisdom. You know, my theory behind her bringing around flowers and honey and stuff is, like, if she's a real estate agent, she wants to keep a really good relationship with these people. So when they go to sell, they have to use her.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: She is a nice person. It's not a manipulative thing. But in any case, uh, strange things begin to happen in the week leading up to Tom's wedding. Um, He finds Vi's watch on shore, despite him, like, throwing it off the... Uh, Edge of the Lighthouse There is some strange footprints um, Where he and Meg Are walking along and then he sees a Third set of footprints behind them Um, Confirmed it is not Jesus, it is Vi Um, We also get a repeated song Called Tormented being played On the record player on vinyl uh, Being sung by Vi I'm Tormented Uh, At one point um, Tom is showing Sandy the wedding ring he's going to give to Meg um, and for roundabout reason I won't get into he ends up accidentally putting it onto a disembodied hand who then like disappears with the ring Um, because this is happening in a scene where Sandy is there as well I just want to reiterate Tom can only see these things no one else is seeing what's going on Tom is getting kind of freaked out and he asks Mrs. Ellis, does she believe in ghosts? And she says that um, you know, I, I don't really, um, but there were some weird things that happened after um the death of a young boy. Uh he lived in a house that I uh, was helping sell, um, and he and his dog died they drowned at sea and um his room kept being very weirdly damp there was seaweed on his bed inexplicably people would hear a ghost dog and uh hens on the island stopped laying eggs that sort of thing so she she doesn't really believe in ghosts but she knows that there's like you know weird things sometimes happen
0: which like suggests that it's like this particular island is weirdly cursed or something which is not something the movie ever gets into
1: no In any case, Tom is so freaked out that he kind of shares a bit that like an ex-girlfriend named Vi came to see him and he feels like she won't leave him alone. Mrs. Ellis is like, okay, what can I do? Hmm, so on her own volition, she heads up to the lighthouse where she knows Tom has been hanging out around um, and starts calling out to Vi. She hears laughter and maybe a voice calling to her, But she's blind, so she doesn't realize it's ethereal. She just believes someone is there. Vi's voice almost leads Mrs. Ellis off the top ledge, um, but she catches herself before that. Then the captain of the boat that Vi had charted over here comes looking for his money um, because Vi was supposed to pay him. Now he finds Tom, Tom pays him, and he begins... And this captain begins to put two and two together about, like, huh, he was quick to get rid of me because he's getting married. Vi is nowhere to be seen, and I know she hasn't left the island. Hmm. Hmm. You know what I should do? Blackmail a murderer. (laughs) To be fair, like... He begins to blackmail before he realizes that Tom is a murderer, but when he realizes Tom is a murderer, he, like, doubles down.
0: Yeah. I, I, will have, I do have to say, like, as much as the movie tried its best to paint this guy as, like, a sleaze bag, I kind of couldn't find myself not being on this guy's side because, like, <laughs> from a different point of view... Like, the
1: Jedi are evil.
0: From a different point of view, like, he's the only person putting all the clues together and figuring out, like, what's... Like, he's right, like, is the thing. I, I can't be against him because it's, like, he, he is right.
1: He also says a lot of jive lingo and he keeps calling Tom Dad. Yeah. Which is hilarious to me because he is so old. Tom is so
0: old. It's not super clear textually how old Tom is supposed to be. At one point, Meg references like he's been so lonely through his life. But Richard Carlson, who plays him, is like a good thirty years older than both of the love interest actresses so you know it it kind of feels like a middle-aged guy marrying like a young hot chick with money basically
1: yeah um, it's uh but you know he's supposed to be who we root for or something mm. Mm, yeah anyways tom takes the captain to the lighthouse so they can kind of talk privately and the captain's like yeah so i know you murdered vi and now i want um, to get out of your hair. And Tom's like, no, but he hears Vi's ghost egging him on of like, you can't let this guy get away with that. There's a pipe right over there. Just one swing and all of this is over. So egged on, uh, Tom hits the guy on the head with the pipe and kills him. Lead pipe in the lighthouse. (laughs) Unfortunately, Sandy was up on the landing and saw, all of it. Or at least saw Tom kill the captain. She did not see the ghost. Then it's the night of the wedding, and Sandy is racked with guilt. She's like, I know he murdered a guy. My sister's about to marry him. What do I do? Meg says she would love Tom no matter what he could have ever done ever in his life. <sighs> um. So Sandy's like, well, then what's the point of telling her? And she goes to Tom to be like, Tom, like if you had a friend who you knew did something really bad, what would you do? And Tom's like, well, what did they do? And she's like murder. And then a problem that this movie has is it'll set something up like that and then cut away, um, for like maximum, like built climax effect. But logically that doesn't make any sense to just leave that moment like
0: that. Tom does like basically tell Sandy, like, Snitches get stitches.
1: No, he says, friends help friends. Yes. Stitches come later. (laughs) Now we are at the wedding. The priest is going on like yada, yada, yada Bible stuff. If anyone has any reason why these two shouldn't be married, say it now. And Sandy's like, oh, should I, should I? And she's about to speak when suddenly the doors blow open with this mysterious supernatural cold wind that blows out candles and wilts flowers, and all of that wind is coming up, up to the altar, and Meg screams, and then we cut. Did they get married? Did they not? Who knows? Next we see Tom is at the lighthouse. He's alone, and he's, like, calling out to Vi, saying, Vi, fine, you won. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to be with Meg. Um, I'm going to leave this island and never return. Sandy, however, followed him here, and uh, once he sees Sandy, Sandy says, Tom, why did you have to kill that guy? Kind of spills the beans that she knows that. Now, Tom, he's kind of at his rope's end. He is frazzled. He's like, well... Sandy, like, you know, you don't, you don't tell on friends. And Sandy's like, no, I would never tell. And he's like, but I don't know since you're nine. What if it slips out? I don't know if I can trust you.
0: Oh, Sandy, why did you have to see me kill that guy?
1: Yes. And he also kind of lets out too that he killed Vi by not helping her and stuff like that. Cause he's just fully unwound at this point. And now with no egging, From Vi's ghost, he begins to lead Sandy up to the lighthouse landing to basically push her off before he skips town. Uh, When suddenly Vi's ghost appears and charges Tom, and he falls instead. Divers go in to recover the body. They first recover Vi's body, and then they find Tom's. And uh, it shows that Vi is wearing the missing wedding ring, and they are together forever in death. And Sandy is traumatized.
0: Yeah, everybody's crying.
1: Yeah, that's the end.
0: So I think this movie is like decently made with decent performances and effects that aren't awful. Um, There are good central ideas here. And it's kind of an interesting twist to make both the ghost and the ghost victim kind of sympathetic, kind of unsympathetic.
1: Yeah, like, like, you know, Vi is the bad girl mm-hmm. um, because of the way she's played, the way she's dressed, like, everything that this movie can do to show you that she's not a good person, mm-hmm. they do. And yet you kind of get on her side. Yeah, she
0: has, like, a legitimate grievance, like... <laughs>
1: she died. She died. Yeah. Like
0: Like, you know, the movie sticks Tom in that same, like, riding the line of unsympathetic boat, too, because the movie makes it really clear that like he has, it's not a split second hesitation. It's not like he hesitated for a moment and then she fell. Like she's there on the ledge being like, save me, Tom, save me, Tom, Tom, like fucking save me for like a good minute while he's like, Hmm. And like really has the time to consider, like I could just walk away from this. And then she falls. And so it's like, yeah, he didn't kill her. But, like, his guilt about not helping her is legitimate because he kind of not helped her on purpose. And, like, Tom's kind of an idiot about (laughs) everything. Like, Vi, you know, was going to blackmail him about their relationship. Sure. But Tom also was, like, stringing along his, like, singer at the jazz club he worked at while he was romancing this, like, young girl whose parents are super rich, like, that's already, like, a little, hmm. And then, like, she dies, and his thought is, like, I'm not going to tell anyone. And to be fair, if you went to the police and you were like, hey, my ex-girlfriend came to the island, and we, ha- we went to the lighthouse to have somewhere private to talk, And she started talking about like blackmailing me and shit. And then she fell. Uh, Like you'd be arrested, right? So I I get why he doesn't like really tell anyone. But on the other hand, like having an adult conversation with Meg about like, hey, there's this other woman who like I'm not with anymore, but she's kind of still obsessed with me. And she might show up to like cause trouble. Like that would be a good conversation to have that he doesn't have. Uh, Even like after Vi like dies Like the way he handles the blackmailer is so poor. Like, the guy at first just shows up to be like, Hey, pay me my 50 bucks. Like, this
1: $5. Well, like, I'm putting it into context for
0: modern terms. Yeah. Yes. But, but,
1: but like, just pay me what I'm owed. Yeah. Like, and he is so weird about it of like, No, I don't know who that is. What do you mean she called out for me specifically? Yeah. <laughs> okay, fine. Here's $5. Go away. Like, yeah. Just be like, oh, oh, yeah, she came to visit me. I thought she left. That's odd. Well,
0: here's what you're owed. Yeah, exactly. Like, Like, chill, my dude. Tom is the worst at keeping it secret that he killed someone. And then, like, when, you know, the blackmailer comes back and is like, hey, man, like, let's make a deal. This is the moment where, like, sure, Vi's ghost egged him on. But, like, that's the, like, he chose to kill a guy at that point, right? Yeah, which,
1: like, he he does... Acknowledge mm-hmm. that he, I did do these things.
0: Just a lot of his troubles would be better uh, solved if he wasn't stupid about them.
1: Sure. I really liked the approach that this movie took about like, is it guilt? Is it not? Mm. But then it also knew with its runtime that it couldn't hold that for long. Yeah. And so then we immediately get into the supernatural. And I really liked the moment Okay, maybe you could argue that the footprints in the sand are supernatural, but what if that wasn't what he saw? The first main supernatural incident is the record player. Uh-huh. And I really liked that. And I really liked the song. It was like a real song, or like made for this movie. He, he takes it off the vinyl and puts it on the table. And they could have been really cool with this uh, of having it be one shot, but they do cut. Um, unfortunately. But anyways, he goes back to the piano and then it starts playing again because the vinyl has moved from the table. I really liked that moment. That was like, uh, sweet. Thank you for acknowledging that this is supernatural.
0: Yeah. And like a lot of stuff is played as like, is this all in Tom's head for a while? Because nobody else sees it. And I think the first time we really get something that everyone notices is at the wedding. I think it's like probably the most effective creepy scene in the movie. Like it's the best legitimately creepy atmospheric buildup that we get in the whole movie up to that point. And then it's just totally wasted.
1: So here's the thing with this movie. Mm-hmm. It does that build and scare moment multiple times through the movie and it builds on each one. Sometimes they're a little weird. Sometimes they're a little more spooky. One good example is uh, Meg goes to check her wedding dress and she screams, we run in, and it's covered in seaweed. Weird, right? And we cut. That's a basic structure for like a horror movie and a horror scare. But what I think Mr. Big doesn't realize is that you can't do that with your big climax. Hmm. Maybe he didn't realize that the wedding... Bit was climactic in that way because it's not plot wise the climax that right. would be sandy being threatened but
0: it's the moment everything's been building to
1: exactly and because like it's the wedding it's the big day and it's so weird to cut from that and you're like you leave the audience going like wait why did we just cut and they're suddenly asking why you did this in the movie rather than being along for the ride
0: and like by cutting to Tom's going to the lighthouse and everybody's like back at home, standing around going like, where's Tom? Um, It it has you going like, wait, what happened at the church? Like you brought up, like, did they get married? Did they not get married? But also like, what did everyone think happened with all of that supernatural creepy stuff? Like what was the immediate aftermath? Like, et cetera, et cetera. Like that was kind of the moment where, things should have really come to a head and instead it cuts away.
1: And I felt that way when Sandy brings up her friend murdered someone Mm -hmm. like I wanted to, so she says it and then we cut to the organ player in a very like
0: spooky.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to see Tom's reaction to that. I wanted to see him realize he's been found out.
0: There's this type of cutaway that this movie does a lot that is something that happens in movies all the time but is kind of like invisible to most of us now and you see it in movies and you see it in books and the most typical example that no one really calls out is when a character comes to another character and they're like there's something i have to tell you and the other person's like what and it's like it'd be easier just to show you and then like we cut to them pulling up in a car to some place like halfway across the state. It's and like, what
1: did you talk about in that car ride? Right, yeah,
0: exactly. Did you just listen to the radio? The whole time, because then they get out of the car and it's like, here it is. This movie does a lot of that. And what it made me realize, and you hit the nail on the head with this at the start of when we were talking about this, I, I think this movie feels like it was made with, hey, we're going to sell this to TV after yes. in mind. Because the structure and the pacing what you're describing, that's commercial breaks. That's That's television. That's like, you know, you build up to a shocking reveal and then that's when you go to commercial. And because of the commercial break, you earn this kind of ellipsis in the story where you can come back and some time has passed and you don't have to show the immediate aftermath of the reveal. You can sort of show, okay, the next step in the story, right? And you can have that blank. You can't really do that in movies or at least sometimes you can but you have to do it differently and you can't do it every time either and it's just so obvious and the other thing that made the movie feel like tv in addition to this stop start structure is its unwillingness to kill anyone but people who deserve it content rules on tv were way stricter than in movies like like all that production code stuff about like you can't like someone who does something bad has to die like people were like well my kids could be watching this tv like i don't want bad things on television like that was just a huge part of tv for such a long time so this movie does things like have the bit where miss ellis goes to the lighthouse and she gets drawn all the way up to the top and she nearly steps off to her death, but doesn't. And they do like a similar thing with Sandy at the lighthouse where she kind of gets pulled in and things are spooky. And then she gets like startled by, uh, the blackmailer. Right. And they kind of do these things where I feel like if this was really wanting to compete with what Alfred Hitchcock is doing and with what Roger Corman's doing with what William Castle is doing, like mrs ellis should have died yeah like straight up you can see that okay they don't kill sandy in that one bit because she needs to be the person under threat for the finale but yeah ultimately the big problem here is like not enough really happens like vi dies accidentally and then basically we get a bunch of like kind of separate incidents of Tom going through, like, something spooky. Oh, it's her severed head! Where he sees a thing, freaks out, nobody else saw it. We do that, like, four or five times until the blackmailer shows up, and then, like, that's kind of the story for a few scenes, and then that ends. And then we get to the wedding and, like, the climax. And really, like, this would fit, like you said, Alfred Hitchcock presents, like, a half-hour anthology show much better than feature length. It wouldn't feel like this, like thing where I feel like the middle of the movie is a lot of people being either at Tom's apartment or Meg's apartment (laughs) talking about stuff.
1: There is a lot of going back and forth to our two or three sets. I will say though, I appreciated how they did build with each spooky moment. Mm. Um, because eventually Vi's disembodied head arrives and she is like talking smack to Tom. So it's clearly like she has agency Mm -hmm. in this world. And they build in that way. And then that's when the blackmailer comes in and is like, I want $5,000. They they did a good job of pacing, I think. Um, I don't want to give the wrong idea that they did poorly with that. Um, it was poorly timed with, like, those cuts on, like, the spooky climax. But I feel like that's more of either this TV thing you've pointed out or... Gordon being unfamiliar with overall structure of a horror movie, sure because he's so experienced with giant monster, where right. it would be fine to cut away because he can just be like, yeah, that person got squished.
0: Right. Like, sure.
1: To your point um, about the effects, I thought they were fairly good. There were no effects that I was like, ooh, that's a little rough somewhere. Like better than others, the disembodied head looked great. Um, until he picks up a mannequin head. Yeah, um, but the <laughs> that's probably efe- the worst thing in the movie. <laughs> the special effect of her head being there and the eye lines, like that looked really great. Vi in basically a Marilyn Monroe dress, like the white Marilyn mm-hmm. Monroe dress, um, in the wind blowing around, that looked good, I think.
0: I think one thing that really works in Gordon's favor here is that the optical printing kind of stuff that he you know, does for all of his movies. If your character can be see-through, that shit is so much easier. And a ghost can be see-through. So, like, it it, it works really well and it makes a lot of sense. Um, it is... Like, you bring up Marilyn Monroe. It is, like, mildly distracting. She that is like, so
1: busty. Vi
0: is, like, very vava voom hourglass. And she's, like she is naturally very busty uh and then is being put into like those 1960s like torpedo kind of bras with like the really cinched waists so it's all becomes like very exaggerated as well and it just makes the ghost stuff like you know it's it's really effective imagery as sarah was just saying with like the dress blowing in the wind and it's the white thing and and you know ghosty and and all that but like it's, it's also like her ghost dress is designed to emphasize her physical features. And so it's like, it's just a little distracting sometimes. Well,
1: cause you got to have sexy babes in your horror movie. Oh,
0: absolutely. You do. And like, you know, Meg is also a sexy babe, good babe content here in this movie. <laughs> um,
1: Not a babe, but Susan Gordon, mm. who is the director's daughter, yeah. plays Sandy uh, is probably the one woman who gets the most screen time. Yeah. She's fairly good. She, as, as like child actors
0: go, yeah, yeah, she's good.
1: Cause you can tell when they suck. Mm-hmm. Cause child actors are either like they suck or they're good.
0: Mm-hmm. And she was good. She gets too much screen time like the movie finds a lot of excuses to put her into a lot of scenes
1: well that's because mr big has always got to be making something big kicking off her career
0: right sure she's she's not bad so it makes her presence throughout the film less painful than if she was not a good child actress but i think everybody for the most part like does a pretty good job with their performances through this movie
1: yeah even a dude who plays tom He's too old. He's too old. Yeah. But his acting was
0: good. Yeah. Yeah. He, he delivers like the, on the guilt and, and that stuff for a while. I was trying to think of like, is this movie failing because it's trying to do this thing where we're supposed to be on Tom's side, but he's kind of a schmutz, um, which a lot of 1950s movies like make this mistake out of. But ultimately I think that I've come down on the side of like, no, like Tom's kind of supposed to be shitty. Uh, Because he dies in the end. And that's the movie's like universal clue to tell you like this guy deserved what was coming to him.
1: Um, I thought this was an allied artist's picture, not universal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank
1: you for always laughing at my terrible jokes.
0: (laughs) So I think like the victims of the horror here, like yes, Tom is being haunted by the ghost through the movie, but ultimately like we end with like meg and her whole family in tears and so like those are the lives that are really destroyed by this right
1: yes uh do you feel ready to move on to ranking yes so there are some signposts i want to call out here Hmm. i want to call out another movie that we watched and it felt very much like a twilight zone episode uh i bury the living Mm -hmm. that was a guy takes over managing a graveyard and if he puts a white pin into someone's name they die or yeah. something. Um so that's episode two thirty eight. That's ranked at number forty seven. That's because that movie is really, really well done with like its tension and its pacing, whereas Tormented does not handle that level of intensity.
0: You know, speaking of intensity, I, I feel like I just need to say this because we've seen it happen <laughs> to so many horror movies now. Yeah. In like the last couple of years. I don't think the jazz scores are working guys.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I wanted to talk about. And I forgot. I actually kind of liked it here because it's integrated because he's a jazz pianist. Yes. Agreed. And one thing that I also liked is that, so there's a moment when Tom is like at the piano, Sandy comes and joins him and she starts playing. um, I think it's a song called Chopsticks. Yes. And he starts like playing and like riffing as she does that. In the climax, when she is threatened, that part of the score plays. And I thought that was, like, really neat and not something I would have expected from a movie that has set itself up to be this movie, you know? Yeah, for sure. So I think they did, or at least the composer was very thoughtful, and I think the editor was very thoughtful in its use of music. I agree that I don't think jazz is working for horror, but I think it works better here than it has
0: elsewhere it's motivated the composer is clearly very good at what he's doing but ultimately when i hear these kinds of scores i'm thinking about either like film noir movies or like batman like the bat like the adam west batman show
1: sure sure i can see that uh there are also moments where the staccato-ness of the jazz felt a little bit too close to mickey mousing
0: Mm, yeah for sure anyways
1: so the signpost I'm calling out here is I buried the living at number 47 which mm-hmm. is way better than this movie mm-hmm. but moving down the other one I wanted to call out here is um I think it was like our first ghost movie the uninvited yes um like it, first
0: like explicitly ghost yeah like it is actually very rare for us to get like straight up just ghost movies
1: yeah so that movie we covered in episode 113. Um, It's currently ranked at number 61. Overall, I think that's a better horror. It's a better ghost story than Tormented. Tormented is good. Don't get me wrong. I did enjoy it, but The Uninvited is a step above. Then I continued down because I basically was like, what if The Uninvited was my ceiling, 61? Um, Looking around here, none of these really fit. Going down, going down. At 105 is The Devil Commands. Mm. We covered that in episode 82. That's also a supernatural movie. It's back when Forrest Karloff was working at Columbia. Mm-hmm. That movie I quite enjoyed. You didn't. But in any case, it's not as good as Tormented. So I made that my floor. And looking up, I actually came up with a fairly narrow range. Hmm. Because looking up, I went to Curse of the Undead at 85 with Cowboy Vampire. I was like, that movie's dope. Let's look down. Uh, the Tangler. no, let's look down. The Return of Dracula, no, let's look down. Teenage Frankenstein, no, let's look down. And eventually, I was like, The Creature Walks Among Us. Mm-hmm. That is a horror movie still, but its ending is so like bleak. Yeah. It's a, it's a horror that hits differently. And I was like, you know what? You could argue that because Tormented is a bit more traditional horror mm-hmm. rather than existential horror. It could, it could go above, but I basically was like, let's have my range be 97 to 105. So that's where I'm looking.
0: So I'm about 20 spots below you. Um, I also have a very narrow range. Yeah. Um, you know, I looked at stuff like, um, the screaming skull, uh, which is at 64, and then I started you know looking down um I was looking at other ghost movies. I was looking at other like people tormented by their guilt kind of movies um and trying to find my way.
1: It was kind of interesting to have a movie where the person being tormented by their guilt is by the person who killed them rather than by someone who's trying to make the person go crazy.
0: yes I mean, there <laughs> or were, kill be- them because like because only. Tom was seeing stuff. There was a moment in the movie where I was like, oh my God, if this turns out to be like a she's been like playing tricks on him and she's still alive ending like all the rest um, after all of this, like I'm going to be so disappointed. So uh, as always, I'm always pleased when it's a real ghost. The thing with this movie is I'm afraid of ghosts. Mm-hmm. This movie didn't scare me.
1: Cause you're not Tom.
0: Sure. But also like there was just something about the, the, the ghost of maybe not the ghost effects, maybe just like the directing or the staging, like the atmosphere wasn't quite built up enough. The movie was never like scary really. Even when it's like her head on like a countertop yelling at him, like I understand intellectually that this is tormenting him with his guilt, you know, in a very like Edgar Allan Poe kind of way but it never felt like the movie was trying to scare me, the audience. And, you know, stuff like The Uninvited, like that ghost is freaky. So that really bumped this movie down quite a bit for me.
1: I wonder if that's because of that segmented in-between-commercial-breaks editing that mm-hmm. you've identified. So the film isn't trying to build atmosphere for its full runtime. It's trying to do in these individual scenes. And while they do ramp up one to another it's not in the cohesive way that we see these other movies doing
0: yeah i think the thing is is that you can do stuff that's like exciting or creepy well with commercial breaks i don't know how well you can actually do fear terror horror etc because if you can take breaks from it it's too easy like to escape right like when you're telling a scary story, you have to like maintain like this very specific atmosphere. Right. And if like right before telling you that the call was coming from inside the house, I was like, Hey, does anyone want another hot dog? Like (laughs) kind of fucks the story. Right. But weirdly enough, the signpost that I went to, um, was the amazing Mr. X.
1: No, I can see that.
0: Yeah. The funny thing is, is that, um, Richard Carlson is in The Amazing Mr. X and right below that is It Came From Outer Space and Richard Carlson is in It Came From Outer Space too. <laughs> it Came From Outer Space is the movie with the beholder in a cave. Yeah. And uh, Amazing Mr. X is like the, the fake spiritualist, right? I decided this was definitely better than It Came From Outer Space, which also is like a little kind of outer limits feeling. I thought maybe... Amazing Mr. X was better than this because it was, I think, more effectively scary in its spooky scenes. But I thought this maybe could be better, too. So I made 122 my floor, started looking up, and above Amazing Mr. X is Jujin Yuki Otoko, which is a good monster movie in that way that Ishiro Honda monster movies are, where you feel for the monster, but isn't... Particularly concerned with being scary. Uh, above that is the 1959 Yotsuya Kaiden that is not done by Nobuo Nakagawa, which we just kind of felt was like a real safe, middle of the road Yotsuya Kaiden. Yeah. That's a movie about some ghost haunting guilt stuff. And I was like, ooh, is that better than this or not? It's a real generic Yotsuya Kaiden, but it's kind of more stylish than this even at its most generic hmm I don't know I don't know and then above that 118 is Night of the Blood Beast which is Roger Corman doing alien in a way not in the we're trapped on the spaceship way but in the this alien has like implanted its seed in this guy kind of way right and it's this whole like weird fucked up thing with this like impregnated man being like mind controlled by like the alien and being like you have to let me impregnate the others and like all this kind of weird shit. And I was like, that's better than this. I I think Bl- Night of the Blood Beast is like much more effective horror movie than this um, TV movie. That's not a TV movie. So my range ended up being uh, 119 to 121. Like those were the spots I'm looking. And it's basically like 20 spots below you.
1: Yeah, my problem with What you're saying about Night of the Blood Beast, yes, its concept is more provocative and Mm. out there. But the production value that we see with Tormented feels higher. I mean, I know Night of the Blood Beast had like the bunker and all of this stuff, so it had a lot more different things going on, but it I don't know, it feels a bit more like a B horror rather than an A TV picture. (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Sure. Um, The thing is, is that like looking up from there, I feel like movies like Cult of the Cobra, The Wasp Woman, um, Village of the Damned, The Bad Seed, these movies, hell, the, the 1926 Student of Prague, these movies like have more going on in the field of ideas than Tormented does, which is at the end of the day, like kind of a basic ghost story. So that's kind of why I couldn't go like much higher than this.
1: Can you remind me what The Thing That Couldn't Die is about from 1958?
0: (laughs) Damn these movies that all have like the same title. The Man Who Wouldn't Die, The Thing That Couldn't Die, the, you know. I think this is is a head movie. This is the reanimated Spanish conquistador who has the severed head on the farm movie. So maybe this goes above that.
1: No. (laughs) Yes, that is wild. Mm -hmm. But do you remember the weird politics of like the random folks living on that ranch? Yeah, yeah. And how it felt so weird and threatening. Yeah. Like on purpose, it wasn't just like random so <laughs> you're like, oh, well, maybe this goes above. And I'm like, no, this maybe this goes below. Are we can you confirm to me that this is not Charlie Brown with a gun? Spanish conquistador?
0: Uh, No, that one is. Um, Sorry, folks. Like we've watched so a many lot movies. of these. That was giant from the unknown. Giant. OK, because he's the big giant conquistador.
1: OK, I just needed to confirm because if it was that movie, then we were going above. Yeah. But um, let's go with your range. Okay. And it's really just about whether this goes above or below *Night of the Blood Beast*. So yeah. for c- folks who want to go back and listen to that, that's episode two forty-eight. Hmm. Tormented goes below that.
0: Okay. Cool. Um. What about the the Kaiden There.
1: So yes, it's middle of the road. It's Yatsir Kaiden. People are going to go see your movie. Sure. You, this is the time to take risks. Tormented. Bert I. Gordon is going from a decade mm. of Thing Big. Thing Big. And now he's not doing Thing Big. He's doing the techniques that he's comfortable with, but this is a completely new approach to those sure. ideas and everything. So I think he's taking More a bit risks. of a leap. Here, So I, I think this goes above that.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm on, I'm on, uh, I'm on your side there for sure. So then entering the list at the new number 119 is Tormented from 1960 directed by Bert I. Gordon.
1: And just like that, Bert I. Gordon is on the list. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, or you can reach out over email at scream scene at gmail.com.
0: Scream scene updates every Wednesday on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, you can use our RSS feed to do so. If you'd like to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever else you're listening, we would really appreciate that. Um, We'd really appreciate you sharing the show with your friends. Um, that's often like the best way for us to grow our audience. And if you really like what we're doing here and, you know, want to support us and any of the weird bonus stuff that we like to do throughout the year, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. You help us, uh, pay our hosting fees for the podcast. It also just goes a long way towards like, helping us have the time to do all of the uh, research and recording and editing that goes into all of these episodes. And when you sign up, you can access like the whole archive of various cool bonus stuff we've done over the years. Uh, Most recently, we did a actual play of the Dread horror RPG, which uh, demonstrates both the atmosphere maintaining in a ghost story thing that i was talking about (laughs) as well as a medium where you can't just randomly cut away from a scene you don't want to deal with the implications of um i mean the listener can pause no but i mean like me is like the the the, the host of the story, right? I can't be like, oh, and I don't want the characters asking any follow up questions about this. So it's the next day suddenly, like when you try that at, at a role playing table, your players just revolt on you, basically. Uh, it's really cool. Sarah did a lot of cool stuff with sound and audio. So check that out at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast.
1: So Ben, what are we watching next week?
0: Next week, Sarah, we are back over the pond to Hammer Horror in the UK with the next like big Terence Fisher directed Hammer Horror film. It is The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll starring Canadian actor Paul Massey.
1: Canadian. <laughs> Paul Massey. So
0: I look forward to seeing what Hammer's take on Jekyll and Hyde is.
1: Yeah, fascinating. We will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.